Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Crooked Conversations. I'm John Lovett. Today on the show, I sat down and talked with Steven Pinker, philosopher, professor, writer, about his latest book, Enlightenment Now. I was so excited to have Steven Pinker in the studio. He's somebody who's written fascinating books on consciousness, on violence, and now on the Enlightenment and the role it plays in our culture now. And I was really interested to hear what his thoughts are on how we're doing, given, given how much of our politics doesn't seem to be driven by reason, by facts, by logic anymore. It feels as though that those forget winning an argument based on facts. It seems believing in facts itself is something people don't take seriously anymore. And this is a really optimistic book. Uh, It doesn't, I don't think, gloss over our problems, but it does say that these enlightenment virtues of reason and, 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 and science, that ultimately these will prevail. And I was fascinated to hear what he thinks about that in an era when we have elected somebody who, let's just say, is not a fan of those ideas. Uh, when that person becomes president, what does that say about us? What does that say we have to do? So I hope you enjoy it. And um, that's it. You'll listen to the whole episode. And uh, don't skip the ads. Here we go. Welcome to Crooked Conversations. I'm John Lovett. I am very excited about our guest today. He is a professor of psychology at Harvard University and a New York Times bestselling author. His new book is called Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. Please welcome Steven Pinker. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Uh, So I want to start with the pessimist case. All right. Trump is president. There is no cost to lying and deceiving in our discourse. Facebook and Twitter and CNN panels leave no home for reason or intellectually honest debate. We've seen a rise in climate change denialism and a massive propaganda operation to obfuscate and confuse and beyond the tenor of our politics. We see a real cost to human flourishing. Life expectancy in the U.S. has dropped two years in a row. Addiction and deaths because of addiction are rising. Trust in the institutions of public life have fallen. People do not trust their neighbors, their government, the media, the businesses in their communities. More and more Americans are isolating themselves into partisan tribes, viewing the other side with disdain. The pessimists would say that we are in a state of tribalism, dysfunction, anxiety, and decline, a new dark age, and you say that we're wrong. Yeah, because if you assemble a list of all the worst things that are happening on the planet at any given time, it's always going to sound dire. Mm -hmm. Uh, The question is, how severe and how long is the list compared to the one that you would have had two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 100 years ago? Uh, Just making a list of bad things doesn't tell you which way the world is going. It just tells you that there are a lot of dire things right now. Right, but we feel as though right now this, you know, look, we've elevated our worst person into our most powerful job. It seems as though the Enlightenment virtues you extol in the book are in retreat a bit in well, our there, politics. There's unquestionably pushback. And you could uh, <laughs> you, you'd have, uh, you have difficulty identifying anyone who stood more in opposition to Enlightenment values than our current president. And I, I list them. Uh, mm-hmm. Not only the values that he uh, opposes, such as cosmopolitanism, such as an international community, such as uh, international trade as a force for uh, both prosperity and peace, such as respect for science, uh, you, you name it. And I do identify how a lot of his policies uh, 
threaten to undo a lot of the progress that we've occurred, if he gets his way for all of them and if they're permanent. Uh, but this is all the more reason that we should um, uh, be aware of what we have to lose, that is, treasure the progress that we've made precisely so that we know what we're, what we're defending, what we should not allow to be disassembled uh, that so quickly. So what are we defending? So what is the... What are the Enlightenment virtues that you're extolling well, I, in the book? I identify them in the subtitle as uh, reason, the idea that we don't rely on dogma or tradition or authority or charisma, but figure things out. Uh, science, that we try to understand the world by f- forming explanations and testing them against reality, uh, always prepared to discover that some of our beliefs might be falsified by, by the data. Humanism, the idea that it's uh, the, the welfare of humans and other sentient creatures that should be the, the target of our moral efforts rather than the glory of the tribe or the dictates of the faith or the heroic acts of a, of a tiny few, that uh, all human lives are equal. And then finally, progress, that, if, that we shouldn't look back to a golden age, but rather that if we understand understand the world, if we try to improve human welfare, then uh, we can do better in the future than we're doing today. So let's talk a little bit about enlightenment today. And I, I, I thought it was fascinating, the discussion of what causes people to reject knowledge in their making of decisions. And I think you, you, you make a point that I think is often lost on the way we talk about politics now, which is uh, the biggest cause for people to not say believe in climate change or to believe in something that you would say is empirically justified is not ignorance but ideology mm-hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about that about 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 where that finding comes from yes there's a Yale legal scholar named Daniel Kahan who has done a, uh, a series of experiments that document that people who uh, would would um, agree that human activity is responsible for warming the plant the uh, climate which is, this, of course, the, overwhelmingly the scientific uh, consensus, actually don't have a better understanding of climate science themselves than the people who deny it. Often the people who deny it uh, dive deep into the literature in search of any doubt that they can cast, any contrary finding, any uh, minority scientist who pushes back against the, the uh, consensus. So they can be perfectly well informed. And conversely, the people who accept the scientific consensus can be pretty uh, out to lunch in terms of their understanding of how climate works. That what determines most people's beliefs is uh, whether they are accepted by a particular social and political coalition they belong to. In the case, in this particular case, it's really the, the, uh, the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party. And that, that totally predicts your, your uh, belief on climate change. And you point to, I guess I'd say, you, know, you then point to sort of fact-checking as almost a response to this. So we've seen a kind of desire on the part of people to click on fact-checking links. You talk about the fact that, uh, that uh, journalistic organizations are putting money into fact-checking because it turns out that people are actively pursuing those things. But it seems like if if the ignorance isn't the problem, but if the partisanship is the problem, it seems like I'd go find the fact check that confirms what I'm looking for, and my opponent would go find the fact check that confirms what they're looking for. What is the way to break that ideological block to knowing what's really going on? Well, the fact-checking organizations themselves, of course, face this problem, and they take uh, extraordinary efforts uh, to make sure that they themselves are not partisan. And, of course, they've got got to prove it by not consistently favoring um, one side or another, although as it happens, they, they statistically they favor one side over another just because the two parties actually <laughs> uh, don't tell the truth equally often. 
More generally, we have to be aware that this is a, a, a problem. It's a, a shortcoming of human nature that we tend to often align our beliefs with our tribal loyalty rather than the evidence that uh, scientific thinking and disinterested reason are not particularly cognitively natural. They have to be, uh, they have to be nurtured. They have to be elevated as norms. Uh, it has, you have, we don't have a solution to the problem of how you make the society more rational, especially not in a hurry. But yeah, yeah. In, in many, many ways we have. People don't believe in unicorns anymore. They don't believe in uh, sacrificing virgins to get better weather. Uh, they uh, don't endorse policies like uh, racial segregation or prohibiting women from voting or in the workplace, which used to be live debates in their era, and now they've dropped off the cliff as kind of un unthinkable options. So over the long run, certain irrational beliefs get defeated by better arguments. Uh, what we don't know is how to accelerate that process. Yeah, I mean, but, but you would also, <laughs> it does feel like we're going backwards, though. In our political debate right now, does I mean, if you're talking mean, about the last 12 months, yeah, or, or 18 well, months. Well, wouldn't you say, I mean, I, I would say you'd have to look back on a few years and say some, you know, a series of trends had to lead to have, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, a black swan event to have someone like Donald Trump winning, but a, a series of things had to go terribly wrong in our culture to allow for something like this to happen, right? Yeah. Uh, but we, we should remember, though, there's, a, I think, a, a bad habit that we fall into of looking at the terrible things happening today and to forget about the terrible things that happened in the past, um, including violations of truth and evidence, such as the um, Saddam Hussein's program of weapons of mass destruction, which led to a uh, pretty consequential war, such as the uh, Gulf of Tonkin resolution based on completely false information about a, an attack on American warship in uh, Vietnam, which led to the escalation of the war in Vietnam. Uh, the Spanish-American War, World War I, pogroms, lynchings. There's been plenty of uh, conspiracy theories, uh, false knowledge, which has led to horrific events in the fact in the in the past too. So we can't assume that this is a a, a, a development that, that came out of the blue. So when so let's put Trump aside for a second. Things are on the men. Things are things are we're, we're in a there's a long-term trend towards. Uh, peace, towards widening prosperity, towards human flourishing, uh, towards reason and enlightenment. What do you see right now in our culture that we'll look back on and say, that was, that was a dark spot? That was a place where the enlightenment had not yet reached? Well, uh, certainly Trumpism is a pretty concentrated counter-enlightenment force. <laughs> I mean, in... in um, Value after value, belief after belief, policy after policy, um, it, it's almost designed as the opposite of what the Enlightenment is. And this isn't just because I like the Enlightenment and I don't like Donald Trump, but quite literally, if you look at, to the extent that you can talk about the intellectual core of Trumpism, I know it sounds like a contradiction in terms, but he was advised by men who consider themselves to be erudite, well-read uh, intellectuals, Steve Bannon, Michael Anton, Steve Miller, and they explicitly cite counter-enlightenment, um, I would call them kooks, um, like um, Charles Morat and uh, Julian Evola, uh, turn-of-the-century fascists 
who laid out what they hated about the Enlightenment. And before that, uh, uh, Nietzsche, also a counter-Enlightenment figure. And so, uh, of course, Trump himself has never heard of any of these people. <laughs> but, he was, he, but his worldview was um, affirmed, and some of the policies explicitly designed under the influence of, of these guys, including withdrawing from the, the uh, Paris Climate Accord, including the opposition to free trade. Um, and then when you, when you look at the particular uh, slogans and beliefs that he affirms, including make America great again, let's start with that one. I mean, that has two right there, four words, and that's two enlightenment values that are contradicted. Number one, that the greatness of a country should be our priority as opposed to the well-being of its citizens, and the fact that we should look back to a golden age as a, and, and wrench the society backward as opposed to trying to uh, improve it in the future. There's been this debate among Democrats about how you counter this counter enlightenment, yeah. and 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 you talk about this in the book. The book, the struggle of arguing against reason, is inherently flawed, right? Because well, what's your argument? Yeah, Seems as though you seem to be employing reason along the way, but it's very clear that that Trump and the people around Trump may have a set of values, but one of the values they have is not caring about reason, not caring about the truth, not viewing it as something they should uphold, but rather viewing politics as a competition of, of, of resources and power. And then on the Democratic side, I think you have this internal debate about how you, how you fight back against something like that. On the one hand, I think you have people that say, well, we shouldn't play on their terms and we should, we should believe in, in reason and argument. We should make our best case. We shouldn't lie like they do. And then you have critics of that point of view that say, well, you're living in a fantasy. This isn't the West Wing. Look what's happened. How far, how far has your logic gotten you? Uh, where do you come down in that debate? Obviously, I know that you extol reason yeah. over <clears throat> lying and deception, but it's also an article of faith that that's a better way to win. Well, yeah, right, but which may be wrong if it's an article of faith. Uh, and, you know, not everyone who has um, won political office has outlawed uh, their opponent. Uh, mm -hmm. some, sometimes truth-tellers do win. You know, certainly if, you're, if you believe in what you're doing, then obviously the response to uh, lies and, and uh, demagoguery can't be more lies and more demagoguery. Otherwise, why are you in politics in, in the first place? It has to be... Uh, upholding the values that you believe in as you yourself uh, seek office with the best, obviously also the best possible strategy and real, real politic and, uh, and cleverness that, uh, that you could muster. But if you're just fighting lies with lies, then a reasonable response to the voter is, well, I'll flip a coin. Right. But that's what we want to be true, right? That's, I, that's what I hope is true. I'm sure it's what you hope is true. But you, well, is that an empirical-based notion that that's the best? Well, way I, I know. I'm not a you know I'm not a political strategist, right? Uh, and so I, I don't know what the answer is over the long run. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we'd face a real dilemma if it was true that the only way that you can become president is to lie more than your opponent. No, that's only uh, been true half the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's obviously true sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing is that is. Is it true all the time so that you've got to beat him as, at his own game, or can you try to change the rules of the game? The fact that uh, Trump did get a, a minority of the popular vote, the fact that he's one of the least popular presidents in history, the fact that his lies have become a, 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 a national joke, a subject to, of, the, of uh, ridicule night after night on the uh, mainstream comedy shows, mm -hmm. suggests that there's, it, there's a, obviously some rhetorical advantage, but it combined with a lot of the quirks of the electoral college, a, a lot of things that don't 
allow us to come to the conclusion that the only way you can become president is to embrace alternative facts, conspiracy theories, fake news, and so on. I think it's too soon to draw that conclusion. So you don't make a lot of predictions in the book, Uh, but you talk a lot about super predictors and people who are good at knowing what's going to happen versus the pundits and gorillas, (laughs) as the other example, that have no idea what's going to happen. You talk a little bit about... uh, about how we can suss out who is good at understanding what's going to happen in our politics. I say that as, uh, so Larry Kudlow, just appointed to the National Economic Council, someone who's been on TV talking about economics for the better part of two decades, and somebody went through and cataloged their predictions, and the predictions are just inevitably incorrect. Oh. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet, you know, they, these guys fail upward. What, 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 what have we learned about the ability of people to prognosticate on matters of politics uh, and 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 who's who's who we should trust and who we shouldn't trust when they give us advice. Yeah, this is research done by Philip Tetlock and um, um, uh, a team at University of Pennsylvania, funded by the uh, research wing of the intelligence community, which shows that um, there there is an ability to predict the the future better than chance uh, a certain number of years out, not not indefinitely into the future. That the super forecasters, the one with the best track record, and and these are cases where the predictions are precise, uh, so you can, uh, there's no spin doctoring uh, after they occur as to whether they were right or wrong. Either a country leaves the European Union or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a terrorist attack or not. And they lay down their predictions and then with a a deadline, and then when the deadline passes, they see whether they're right or wrong. So you can actually uh, count them up. The successful ones use what's sometimes called Bayesian reasoning, named after the Reverend Bayes, which is that you first tally a uh, the base rate of whatever event you're talking about. How many countries do leave the European Union? Is this a kind of thing that happens every day or a mm-hmm. real rarity? And then you increment it up or down by uh, information as it comes in. You try to pool your reasoning with uh, other experts. You learn from your mistakes. You don't sign on to any grand narrative or ideology. Those are the ones that tend to do the the worst. You kind of do the nerdiest prediction you can imagine, uh, crunching numbers and uh, assessing probabilities and not getting too married to any hypothesis. Uh, I think we need more of that in our journalistic and intellectual culture so that the prognosticators who are, uh, as they say, um, always wrong, never in doubt. Yeah. Uh, it, it is, uh, to say the least, frightening that this will be the, that this man will be our uh, chief economic advisor, given that, that track record. But the thing is that within, even within journalism, it was, it, I guess it took him being elevated to this position for someone to go back and count. You wonder why that hasn't been done as a running tally all along on all our pundits. Yeah, I wonder if we'll look back on the way in which we analyzed our politics on television as another example of a place where we had a, a, lo- a long quite, way to quite go. Quite possibly, because there are the, the commentators on the right, the commentators on the left, the congenital optimists, the congenital pessimists. Uh, those, those are the ones with the worst track record. Uh, it's the ones who really follow the data where they lead and put it in the context of larger patterns of data that have the, the best track record. But none of this is even applied to the commentariat. We don't know when we're reading our favorite columnists in, in the papers what their track record is. There's no scorecard. There's no scorecard. Of course, they wordsmith their predictions so they aren't so easily falsified. What could happen yeah. is likely to happen. Exactly. I'm John Lovett. More with Steven Pinker after the break. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. It is? It is. Finally. Are you hiring? Yes. Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. 
something better than posting your job online and just praying the right people see it. We're long past that. The cadence of the cadence of that sentence reminds me of every party has a pooper. ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for. <laughs> Mukta's looking at Love It like, what the fuck <laughs> what did you Is there say? a song that's like, every party has a pooper, and if you don't know who the pooper is, you're the pooper? That's hmm. not party a, pooper? Nope. You know what I'm talking about? Isn't that like a, a poker term? No, party pooper is not a poker term. If you don't know who the mark is, it's you. That's, yeah, I guess. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in... What's the time frame? Just one day. There you go. Uh, and ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive, so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Is that an old SNL skit that we don't have the rights to? That is a clip from a film called Father the Bride, and I think um, oh, it'll be Bride. fine. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> use. <laughs> it's parody. We're parodying it. <laughs> Leave it in. Right now, Crooked Conversation listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Crooked Convos. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Crooked Convos. ZipRecruiter.com, the smartest way to cook. Higher, <laughs> higher, higher, higher. Crooked Conversations is brought to you by Everlane. Oh, you know, I got some Everlane stuff in the mail, and it's great. I, Fantastic. That that, that, uh, that blue T-shirt with the stripes uh, that you've seen um, walking around the office that's drawn your eye a few times to say, what a cool shirt, that's Everlane. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Thanks, Tommy. <laughs> Remember when you said that, Tommy? <laughs> <laughs> would you buy a T-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't buy a T-shirt for $50 at all. With Everlane, you need. To <laughs> With Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs, so you know that you're never overpaying. They want you to know what you're paying for and why. They're radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. Like Jared Kushner. That's not one that they work with, but I I see where you're coming from. Oh, I just meant he's radically transparent. Oh, that's true. He is we not. <laughs> because Everlane sells directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Their essentials, like their Cotton Crew t-shirt, are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, made from quality materials. It is essential. Also, check out the Cashmere Crew, the 100% human tea. I have a Cashmere tea, Crew. The 100% human tea. It's not made of 100% humans. Okay. It's a lie. That's what I'm just checking. It's like, when that, it's like Adam's family, which is, is it made from real Girl Scouts? <laughs> Remember? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of movie references in this ad. Uh, where my head is at. Or, or the Twill Weekender bag. Don't sleep on that. Everlane's <laughs> timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. That's everlane.com slash crooked convos. Everlane.com slash crooked convos. It's 100 degrees in the studio. What do you say we get the hell out of here? Cool. Let's get out of here. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, host of With Friends Like These. It's a show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. I have conversations with people across the political and cultural spectrums about what they believe and why, and the stories behind all of our beliefs. This isn't another show where a liberal or conservative either yell at each other or try to find common ground. This is about learning to see through someone else's eyes. I personally think agreeing is overrated anyway. 
And besides, we're not going to make any progress towards common ground or agreeing if we don't understand each other first. With Friends Like These comes out every Friday. Hope you follow along and that you leave feeling inspired to really listen to those around you. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, in the discussion, I found myself thinking about the conservative argument on guns when I was reading your argument about the Enlightenment in this specific way, which is it often feels like a gu- uh, uh, guns can never fail people. People can only fail guns, right? That, that oh, uh, it wasn't the AR-15's fault. It was just in the wrong hands or it was just misused. That this weapon, uh, it's not the weapon's fault. It was used for mass murder. Uh, it's simply a tool in the hands of the right people. It has its virtues. And anytime it is used incorrectly, it's misused. That's not the fault of, of weapons. And I found myself feeling the same way in your discussion of the Enlightenment, that, that whenever you point to issues, whenever you point to examples in which Enlightenment virtues have been used to justify racism, eugenics, uh, misogyny, homophobia, yep. that these are, these are not examples of the Enlightenment failing us. These are examples of us failing the Enlightenment, that these are misapplied virtues rather than simply a tool someone is using for nefarious ends. Yeah, but the, the enlight- Enlightenment values weren't used to justify racism. I mean, these were counter-Enlightenment values at best, the idea that, uh, that, that it's the tribe that we should look to as the source of our identity and the source of, uh, of, uh, of our uh, efforts. But it was the Enlightenment thinkers who laid the case against racism. Right, but this, <laughs> but this is sort of the part where I found myself having a hard time drilling down. So, you, you, for example, you talk about eugenics. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, actually, you know, a lot of scientists should be damned for their involvement in eugenics and for pushing it forward. And fortunately, it's been discredited by its association with Nazism. However, eugenics itself fits into a larger story outside of science. And that's why it posed such a threat where I think some of the critics of the book would say, well, says you. I mean, these are people who said they were using the tools of science to the best of their ability and their using of reasoning and the enlightenment virtues you talk about applied uh, fairly to the best of their abilities led them to the to sort of horrific and dangerous and deadly consequences. Well, the, the um, deadly consequences were by violating concepts of human rights and limited government that were very much a part of the Enlightenment. Now, of course, the Enlightenment doesn't have it doesn't consist of a catechism. It's not like a doctrine where you can say, well, these are the ideas that are on the list and th- those that aren't. There are going to be cases where different values come into conflict, and uh, one of them, which we now recognize to be a, uh, a a terrible idea was that we should seek progress in allowing the government to improve the uh, genetic stock of, of the uh, of the species. Now, of course, there's another Enlightenment principle that governments are not embodiments of society or the world, but they are gadgets that we set up that we uh, allow to have certain um, uh, perquisites under the control of the people in order to uh, carry out the uh, interests of the people, and improving the species is not one of them. So there's no way to know a priori which of these principles is going to work out best. And this is, uh, I think it'd be hard to argue that the original eugenics uh, idea from Francis Galton and endorsed by Margaret Sanger, uh, George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, 
uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb, a lot of progressives. Right, people that we would it. call, pro- yeah, right, yeah. not conservatives, people that we would call progressives. People That's right, people were... on the left. Right, That's right, right, yeah. right. Uh, And their, the original idea was you encourage smart people to have more kids, then that kind of morphed into sterilizing uh, people in the uh, in, in mental institutions and uh, who are judged to be uh, retarded or uh, mentally ill. And then the, the Nazis, of course, turned into genocide. And the Nazis, Nazism is the quintessential counter-enlightenment movement. They loathed the Enlightenment. Uh, they valued the tribe. They looked back to uh, heroic ancestors. They um, had no concept of universal human rights or human flourishing, to put it, to put it mildly. Right. Um, so it played out in, in a way that we that now horrifies us. But it's not as if the Enlightenment inevitably led to, to uh, Nazism. Quite the contrary. All right. So you've written this book on the virtues of reason and science. What is this, in, to your mind, and, 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 and you talk about in the book that the, the kind of uh, – the, the way in which people rationalize the beliefs they previously hold. What's the strongest argument that you can make against the virtues you outline in the book? You're, you're sitting across from yourself, mm-hmm. and you're trying to make the case that actually uh, the Enlightenment has failed us time and time again, that it's only been because of the, the tribalistic morality of, of religion and uh, preceding ideas that have saved us from the excesses and uh, coldness of, of rational thinking uh, as you outline it. Well, well, you've just laid out a, a case, which I would argue doesn't actually fit the history as it's unfolded, uh, but that would be what the case would have to sound like, yes. <laughs> now, the problem is you couldn't lay out, as I note in the book, you can't lay out a case uh, against reason because what a case means is you're using reason. Right. So reason is, reason is not the kind of thing that actually can be rationally questioned, almost by definition. It's not something- Well, that seems that, unfair. No, it isn't. It's, but it, it's it's the way it's the way things must be because you can't justify everything without accepting the fact that there is this process called justification in the first place. Otherwise, you get kind of an in, infinite recess. You you you. Uh, how do you justify that? Well, here's the way I justify it. Yeah, but how do you justify the way you just justified it? At some point, we uh, accept that we use reason. We don't reason about reason, but reason is inescapable. It's like the, the air we breathe. So it seems like it's pretty ironclad. Well, for reason, it certainly is. In terms of whether scientific institutions have had a net benefit effect or effect or not, that's an empirical uh, hypothesis, and it could be that science just led to uh, you know, massive experiments that turned people into guinea pigs for lethal experiments and that unleashed uh, one carcinogen after another into the world, produced weapons of mass destruction that were increasingly used so that as science had more of a toehold in society, our fortunes, when they're measured in terms of lifespan and death, went down. And the argument that I make is that that is not what happened, that uh, as science became more consolidated, lifespans increased and uh, war deaths decreased, uh, happiness increased, education increased, diseases were eradicated. So the track record of science as an institution uh, is pretty good. So for people listening that are feeling pessimistic because Trump is president, what would you say, what would you ask them to do in the spirit of kind of, mo- uh, uh, of, of fighting back against the sort of anti-enlightenment values that have gotten such a large platform with their current president, that, they're, that they want to believe in reason, they want to fight on a level playing field of argument and facts and truth and science, and they're 
bumping up against people on Facebook that are making shit up, that they're that they're turning on CNN and there's people yelling. They feel like it's hopeless. What would you what would you say to them? Well, so for starters, vote. Uh, a lot <laughs> of people a lot of people stayed home on, in uh, November eighth, two thousand sixteen. That could have flipped the election. Wouldn't have taken very many of them. But um, people whose uh, fortunes actually were uh, highly affected by who was going to be president became so cynical about the institutions of. Uh, liberal democracy. They thought, well, uh, Hillary, Donald, what difference does it make? And and stayed home, even though, it, as we now know, it made, made a huge difference. Uh, in terms of Facebook and social media, it's to, to push back, to <clears throat> not join shaming mobs, not to repeat um, uh, unverified uh, assertions, to everyone do their part to make social media a more rational forum, uh, to call attention to the uh, compromises of reason themselves so that they become kind of a thing that people are, are aware of, like repeating the party line of your particular uh, political coalition and just assuming that this is the way that you deal with uh, violent crime, that's the way you deal with in, um, unemployment. People should say, well, you're just repeating the, the, the standard left-wing position or right-wing position. What, what's the evidence behind it? Uh, and so that our primary identity shouldn't be as left-wingers or right-wingers, but rather as kind of empiricists who are open-minded and are thirsty for information about what works and what doesn't. Those values should be uh, uh, promoted. Now, I don't know, that, that may not be enough to get Donald Trump out of office. I mean, it's also going to take some good old-fashioned political organizing and uh, just strategizing. Fantastic lies. Just the best lies we can come up with. No? Yeah, well, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope not. Because okay. actually, if they were, if we had to tell lies, then wh then wh why are we, uh, why do we want to get get Donald Trump out of office anyway? Well, presumably because I prefer cause we're, my cause liars. Because we have a better, crap, better brand of liar on my side. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. Then that's that's really not going to do it. I mean, that, that by, <laughs> by definition, that, that that's not a a good reason. Uh, so I wanted to close uh, with a quote from the book because I thought it was a moving defense. Uh, of the of reason and science and knowledge, which is something I think we all feel like uh, we have to fight for. Uh, you said, we are born into a pitiless universe facing steep odds against life-enabling order and in constant jeopardy of falling apart. We were shaped by a force that is ruthlessly competitive. We are made from crooked timber, vulnerable to illusions, self-centeredness, and at times astounding stupidity. Yet human nature has also blessed us with resources that open a space for a kind of redemption. We are endowed with the power to combine ideas recursively, to have thoughts about our thoughts. We have an instinct for language, allowing us to share the fruits of our experience and ingenuity. We are deepened with the capacity for sympathy, for pity, for imagination, compassion, commiseration, uh, we will never have a perfect world and it would be dangerous to seek one but there is no limit to the betterments we can attain if we continue to apply knowledge to enhance human flourishing and I thought that was a beautiful well thanks for reading that a I, beautiful description of uh, what we're trying to uh, make central in our politics well it was, my, it was my, my, my best attempt to distill the message of the book in a way that I, uh, I hoped would be uh, inspiring and empowering. I mean, mo a lot of the book consists of graphs and numbers, but I realized that it, you can't just make the case with uh, data and hope to sway people's uh, hearts. And so that was my attempt it's, to muster a little bit of eloquence to make the case more uh, stirring. It's almost as if in the final moments of your book, you're casting aside reason and debate and argument for appeal to emotion and the base primitive well, uh, not desires and passions of people. I would say I would not say casting aside. I would say aligning. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Stephen Pinker, for being here. The book is Enlightenment Now. Uh, it's really worth reading, especially at a time in which I think people are too pessimistic. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Cool.
Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And uh, you made it to the end. And so now you get the reward of this just phenomenal outro uh, that uh, Muta has watched me record several times because it's 100 degrees in the studio. That's his little behind the scenes that you get for making it this far because, um, you know, you're one of the better people to listen because you've made it all the way to the end. And next week, we'll have another great Crooked Conversation coming your way. So tune in then. And uh, that's it. Bye. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.